0: One of the things that we are experiencing in our culture right now are cyber attacks. In fact, we're all familiar with these attacks recently with Colonial Pipeline. And what they found out was there is a group of people known as the Dark Side. The Dark Side supposedly and ostensibly is a group that comes from Russia. And what they did was they hacked into our pipeline and they basically created, as all of us know, a gas shortage. And it basically held people hostage. And Colonial had to pay $5 million in ransom in order for them to give the code back so that they can restore the supply of gas. Well, just as there are cyber attacks in our culture and there's a multitude of them, the Bible talks about spiritual cyber attacks. And these cyber attacks are on the church and they come from the dark side, the dark side being false teachers. And that's what we want to talk about this morning as we finish up the last book before we start a gospel, and that is the Beatles, Jude. So turn, if you will, to Jude. We're going to be looking at Jude this morning. And this is a letter that is very, very short. It's like John probably said last week, Second and Third John, those were New Testament postcards. This is another postcard that's very short, very brief but is packed with a lot of information. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background, we're going to have to fly through this book. I can't get into all the specifics. But Jude basically wrote about 30 to 35 years after Jesus died on the cross. You'll see the timeline there. Jesus died at about 30 A.D., and Jude wrote about 30 to 35 years later, probably 65 A.D. Some people would actually say it was later in the 80s. But Jude wrote primarily to a Jewish community. We don't know specifically who to. The reason why we know it was primarily a Jewish audience is because throughout his letter, Jude uses Old Testament illustrations. And so we know that his audience was familiar with a lot of the Old Testament illustrations that he uses. Now, there are debate among theologians as to whether Peter borrowed from Jude or Jude borrowed from Peter. And the reason we say this is because Jude has 25 verses and 16 of those 25 verses has allusions to 2 Peter. 2 Peter talks about false teachers, Jude talks about false teachers. So, who borrowed from who? We really don't know and it really doesn't matter. What we do know is 2 Peter basically says false teachers are coming Jude basically says, they are now here. So let's look at the introduction. We're going to go through this very quickly so we can get into the meat of the letter. Jude opens up in verses 1 and 2, and he says, Jude, and by the way, the the Greek is really Judah, not Judas. Really, that's what it is, is Judas, but no one wants to be associated with Judas because we know who Judas is, and so rather than use that name, Jude uses the name Jude rather than Judas. It's like the name Jezebel. Have you ever heard of anybody naming their daughter Jezebel? People name their cat Jezebel, but they don't name one of their children Jezebel. And so he didn't want to be associated with that. So he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jude says, I'm a slave of Christ. And notice he says he's the brother of James. Notice he's humble here, just like James was. He doesn't say, well, you know, my brother is Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as a bond slave, and he says, I'm the brother of James, not the brother of Jesus. That shows his humility. And then he identifies his audience by using spiritual terms here, to those who are called. The word called simply means those who are saved. He says, beloved in God the Father. Some translations have the word sanctified. I think it's better in the Greek to look at it as beloved, which means we're loved by God. We're kept for Jesus Christ, that means we're secure eternally, and then he gives a benediction here in verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so there are five terms that Jude uses here to describe his audience and every believer. We are the enslaved ones, we're enslaved to Christ, we are the called ones, we are the loved ones, we are the secure ones, and we are the blessed ones. Because he says, love, mercy, and grace be multiplied to you. And really, all of these terms are designations to describe a true believer. And so I could argue this, if you're going to overcome the dark side, false teachers, And listen, there's a proliferation of false teachers that are existing, not only within the church today, but outside of the church. If you're going to overcome them, at minimum, you got to be a believer. And so the audience to whom he's addressing, he uses these five designations to basically say, here's who your identity is. In other words, you better be known by the Father, because a true Christian, according to John 10, is known by name. The Bible says God knows you by name. He knows whether or not you belong to him. I was visiting the hospital two weeks ago, and on a Tuesday, I walked in, and I was heading to the elevators to go up and visit some patients, and a woman came out of the elevator, and she looked at me, and she said, hey, Mike, I didn't know this lady from Adam, and it caught me off guard. When she said my name, it made me feel something. And you know what? I said hi to her. I don't even know who she was, and she didn't even know me. She saw my name tag, and it was Mike, and she said, hey, Mike. And you know what? That made me feel somewhat special. Listen, God knows your name if you're a true child of God. And so he opens up this letter, and he basically identifies the believer. Now, what he does in the rest of this epistle is he gives us four ways that you and I could overcome the dark side. And the dark side here would be false teachers which abound in our culture. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 basically says this, that in the last days there is going to be a bevy of false teachers that are going to pull people away from the truth. And so what's the first way that you and I could overcome the dark side? First of all, we must stand against false teachers, We must fight against false teachers. This doesn't mean we're nasty, it doesn't mean we're belligerent, but what it does mean is that the church is not willy-nilly. The church is not passive. We must stand. Notice what he says in verse 3, and this really is the purpose statement of the whole epistle. He says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he picked up his quill and he was gonna write about the common salvation that they shared in Christ. But he says, I felt the necessity, and in the Greek it means he felt compelled by the Spirit. In other words, he was gonna move in one direction, but the Spirit of God compelled him to move in another direction. And by the way, this is instructive for us that sometimes we may be moving in a given direction, but the Holy Spirit moves us in another direction. We have to be led by the Spirit. And he says, I felt a compulsion to write to you appealing that you, here it is, contend earnestly for the faith. Now that word contend earnestly in the Greek is a military term, it is an athletic term and it implies that we are in a struggle for the truth. We are in combat against false teachers and we need to be ready, we need to be dressed. And notice what we're contending for, he says, the faith. That's not referring to your personal faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek says the faith, which is referring to objective apostolic doctrine. In other words, we are to contend for the truth of God's word. And what does he say about God's word? It was once for all time handed down to the saints. That is a unique Greek word. It's only used here in the New Testament. And basically what it's saying is this, apostolic doctrine has been handed down to the church. There is no more, no less. We have the truth from Genesis to Revelation. And he says, that's what you and I are to fight against and stand against. Listen, we are in a struggle against false teachers. And it has gotten worse and worse. And what he's saying is we have to stand for the truth and we have to stand for godliness. And listen, this battle that we're dealing with is both offensive and defensive. For example, you've been reading in the news lately about what's going on with Israel and the Palestinians. Thankfully, there's been a ceasefire. But one of the things that they mention in the article that I read is that Israel has what is called a rock dome. And basically, what happens is when Hamas was sending their missiles over, there was this dome, which basically, when it hit this certain area, Israel had a missile that would launch up and it would intercept the missiles that Hamas was sending over. In other words, they were being defensive. When they were being attacked, they responded defensively. But Israel not only responded defensively, they also responded offensively. If you look at the next slide, one of the things that Israel did was they actually sent missiles into the tunnels of Hamas and the Palestinians, what? To destroy their missile base. And so their attack was both offensive and defensive. And that's exactly what we have to do if we're going to stand for the truth, if we're going to stand against false teachers. It has to be both offensive and defensive. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to teach the truth to the next generation. We have to pass it down to our children. That's being offensive. But we also have to be defensive. Why? Because you're going to have atheists in our culture, you're going to have false teachers in the church, you're going to have false religious systems outside of the church, and you know what? They're going to attack us and they're going to question our doctrine. They're going to say the Bible's filled with myths and it's basically a book of fables. We have to be able to defend that because a lot of people today are not just going to accept the Bible as the Word of God. Just because you had a personal experience with Jesus is not necessarily going to wash anymore in our society. People need to know that there is objective truth. And so our task as we stand against false teachers and as we stand for the truth is both offensive and defensive. Now, if Jude says we're to stand for the faith, apostolic doctrine that was once and for all delivered to Christians, what are the truths that we need to stand for? Because, listen, Christians fight over a lot of nonsense. We can argue about non-core doctrines, and that's fine. We can have healthy discussion. But there are certain doctrines that we cannot negotiate away. And I've mentioned these to you over the years, and so has John. But let me give you them real quickly in rapid-fire succession. Here are the doctrines that you and I are to teach offensively and defensively. Number one, God is a self-existent eternal spirit who is the creator, sustainer, and consummator of all things. Secondly, God exists as a trinity. That is attacked by false religions and the cults. Thirdly, Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's virgin-born, sinless, the only way to heaven. He died on a cross, rose from the dead, and is coming back again. In fact, false religious systems and cults will attack the person of Christ. Here's another one. Man is created by God. Do you realize origins is under attack in our culture? We are the product, according to our society, of Darwinian evolution. Therefore, you don't need God. No, the Bible says man is created by God. He is a sinner by nature and choice and in need of a savior. Salvation is a free gift that cannot be earned or deserved, but is received by faith or trust alone in Christ. Every world religion says you can earn your way to heaven. Another one is the Bible is God's word from Genesis to Revelation. All religions and all cults have their own book. And then here's a few more that is becoming an issue in our culture today. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Notice how the foundations are being attacked. All the way back in Genesis, God defined marriage between a man and a woman. How about this one, and this goes back to Genesis, there are only two what? Genders, male and female you can be a Christian and walk in a lifestyle of ungodliness. This is being taught today with progressive Christianity. And so these are the foundations that are being attacked. And what Jude is saying is, as Christians, we have to know what we believe. We have to stand for the truth. We have to be loving and gracious, but we cannot negotiate these doctrines away because these define Christianity. If you mess with these, you basically gut Christianity in terms of its essence and so we must make sure that we are grounded and a lot of Christians today they don't know what they believe and why they believe it if you ask them why are you saved they'll say well because my parents were Christians or I accepted Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade and that's fine but listen if that's the only extent of your faith and you are a mile wide and an inch deep you're not going to be able to stand against false teachers And the best way for you to do that is to pass it down to your children, the next generation. So the first thing we could do to overcome the dark side is stand against false teachers. The second thing is we must realize the destiny of false teachers. We must realize the destiny of false teachers. If I know false teachers are under the judgment of God, I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to sit under their teaching. I'm not saying we don't reach them, but we don't want to be subject to their teachings. And the Bible makes it very clear that they are under the judgment of God in a greater way because to whom much is given, much is required. James 3 says that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because they know the truth and they influence other people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 of the Pharisees, he says, you make people double sons of hell by your doctrine. Now Jude sprinkles throughout his little epistle statements about how false teachers are under the judgment of God. Look at verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. He says they're condemned. Notice verse 13. He says this, False teachers are wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. They are going to spend eternity in outer darkness. And then in verse 14 and 15, he quotes from the book of Enoch. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. This is not an inspired book, but it's used by the early church. And he quotes from Enoch, and here is what Enoch said. It was also about these people, that is the false teachers, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, here's what Enoch prophesied back in Genesis saying, behold, The Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones, that is angels, to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Three times here, Jude says, these false teachers are under the judgment of God. One of the areas or gyms that I work out is Planet Fitness, um, Planet Fitness actually is a pretty good gym. I get in, I get out. I don't have to deal with the heavy metal music. I've been in a bunch of gyms, and when I'm up in the morning, the thing that drives me nuts is I don't want to hear Black Sabbath playing on the radio, and so I switched over to this gym, but I noticed something that they have embossed across their wall. You'll notice it up on the screen, and it says this, judgment-free Zone." judgment-free zone. In fact, they've painted it to say no critics allowed. Well, listen, Jude doesn't agree with Planet Fitness. He doesn't say no judgment allowed. Jude actually says judgment is coming. And he uses three examples from Old Testament history to show That if God judged in the Old Testament, he will judge false teachers now. The first example he uses from the Old Testament in terms of biblical history of the Israelites. Notice, if you will, verse 5. He says, I want to remind you that you know everything once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He's talking about the rabble that came out of Egypt. That generation was judged by God because of their unbelief, and they wandered in the wilderness 40 years. And so he says, look at the Israelites. If God judged his own people, the Israelites, how much more will he judge false teachers? A second example he uses is fallen angels in verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, many believe that these angels fell from heaven, tried to have sex with women to create a demon human race in Genesis chapter 6, and those angels were judged by God. And so if God judged the Israelites... In the Old Testament, he will judge false teachers. If God judged fallen angels who left their domain and tried to cohabitate with women, he judged them by putting them in dungeons. One final example we all know that he gives is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, are not lovers. They asked this new generation, who is Sodom and Gomorrah, to test their biblical knowledge, and their response was, Sodom and Gomorrah are lovers. See, that shows you the biblical ignorance of our generation, verse seven just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these angels. And what does he mean by these angels? Well, just as angels came down to have sex with women, what happened in Sodom? The men tried to have sex with other men. He says they indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh. Just as angels tried to have sex with women... The men of Sodom tried to have sex with angels, and he says, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so Jude says here, you need to realize that false teachers are under the judgment of God. And he uses three examples from history to demonstrate this. He says, look at Israel, look at fallen angels, and look at Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says this, if God judged historically, listen carefully, God's going to judge again. And I know our culture wants to mock that. Our culture wants to laugh at that. They think that this idea of a judgment from God is ridiculous. And listen, if you believe in Darwinian evolution and there is no purpose in life and we're just molecules in motion, we're just moist robots, it really doesn't matter how we live. Why? Because there's no judgment. But the Bible makes it very clear that every single human being is gonna stand before God in Revelation chapter 20 is gonna give an account at the great white throne judgment if they don't know Jesus Christ. And listen, if you know Jesus Christ, you have no fear this morning because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, therefore you are exempt from the wrath of God. And so how do we overcome the dark side? Number one, stand against false teachers. Number two, realize the destiny of false teachers. Thirdly, I would have you note Notice, know the characteristics of false teachers. Know the characteristics of false teachers. How do I identify them? Now, I'm going to have to fly through this because I've reduced it down to 10. Jude gives us 10 characteristics of false teachers. And listen, if you know what a false teacher is like, you're able to spot them. Now, I must admit, not all false teachers manifest all of these characteristics all the time you're gonna find that some false teachers are very moral individuals. They're very nice individuals. I've met Protestant pastors who are very nice, but not saved. I've met a plethora of priests in the Catholic Church that are very nice, well-intentioned, moral on the outside, but are not born again and regenerate. So Jude is not saying that all false teachers will manifest all these characteristics all the time, but he gives them as a benchmark by which you and I can measure. It'd be like, you know, with John Walsh. Do you remember the show America's Most Wanted? I wish they would put that back on TV. Do you remember when he would come on and he would talk about a, person, a, a particular criminal, and what would he do? He would give the characteristics of the person, what he looked like, where he may have been uh, in, in a last city or whatever else. Why did he give the characteristics? Because he wants you to identify them, and then you could call in their hotline. Well, here are the characteristics. We're going to fly through these really quick. Number one, false teachers are deceptive or they are secretive. Notice, if you will, verse four. For certain persons have crept in, what does it say? Unnoticed. You know what that means? They use Christianese language. They appear to be Christian. They are are wolves in sheep's clothing. He says here in verse 12, These are the men, and notice what he says about these false teachers, they are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. In other words, they would have love feasts like potlucks in that day, and these false teachers would come into those love feasts, and no one would know that they're false teachers. And he says they're like hidden reefs. You know what a hidden reef does. A person who's navigating a ship doesn't realize that there is a hidden reef, and what happens is it tears up the bottom of the boat, and the boat ends up running aground. And so, what he says here are false teachers are often clandestine. This is why some of these are more deadly than others. We know false religious systems out there, we can identify them Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Islam. We get that. We even, to some degree, know the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and several others. But listen, what's deadly is when you have false teachers come into the church, they are unnoticed, they use Christianese language, and listen, if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, and you don't read the fine print of what they're teaching, you're going to be hoodwinked. You're going to be a sunk duck. And so realize that they don't always come out and say, I'm a false teacher. You need to listen to what they are saying. A second characteristic he gives is they are sexually immoral. Verse 4, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. This probably has smatterings of Gnosticism. The Gnostics taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. So if your body's made out of matter, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's made out of matter. Matter is evil. God couldn't create matter because God is pure spirit. Therefore, since your spirit is what's pure... And it's encased in this body, which is evil. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can glut it all you want to glut it. You can sex it all you want to sex it. And he says, no, these types of people are turning God's grace. I've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how I live. And he says, no, they pervert the grace of God for sexual sin. By the way, progressive Christianity This is getting trendy in our culture, where a lot of these people are teaching that it's okay to live together, to sleep together, blah, 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 blah. They want to get into this. He also says in verse 8, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming, look what he says they do, defile the flesh. What does he mean by that? Sexual immorality. In fact, many of you remember David Koresh with the Branch Davidians? Here is what was said of David Koresh, quote, For sins as small as spilling milk, the children said, they were struck with a wooden paddle known as the helper. To train for the final battle, they were instructed to fight each other, and if they did not fight hard enough, they were paddled for that too. David Koresh told them to call their parents dogs. Only he was referred to as their father. Girls as young as 11 were given a plastic star of David, signifying they had the light and were ready to have sex with the cult leader, end quote. See, he's a classic false teacher. Now this is not saying that every pastor or leader that falls into sexual sin is necessarily a false teacher because we know King David did and he was a man after God's own heart. But listen, false teachers typically are sexually avarice. They go after that because that's their goal. A third characteristic, they deny Christ's lordship. Verse four, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and here it is, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny Jesus in their Christology, their doctrine of Christ, and by the way, that is a red flag when you hear somebody distort the person of Jesus Christ. Always listen for what they believe about Jesus. Because often false teachers will distort Jesus. They deny also his lordship in their life. Another characteristic is they claim to represent God in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming. Now, what does he mean by dreaming here? Well, he's referring back to Jeremiah 23, where the false prophet said, I had a dream last night. Let me tell you what the Lord said. Does that sound familiar with a lot of TV preachers? Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give dreams to true Christians. I'm not saying God doesn't give visions. But a lot of these hucksters on television... They use that. Well, the Lord gave me a dream, and he told me that if you give this amount of money, you will be blessed. Or I've had a vision in the name of the Lord, and God said in Jeremiah 23, he said, No, no, they're prophesying lies to you. I never gave them a dream. I never gave them a vision. So some of these people claim to represent God, but they are hucksters of the word of God. A fifth characteristic, they reject authority. Verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority. Verse 11, they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam. Balaam's mentioned in Numbers 22, and it says they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah's mentioned in Numbers 16, he challenged the authority of Moses, and God swallowed him in the ground. And so through these two verses, they reject authority. What does that mean? Well, they don't want to submit to God's authority, and they don't want to submit to apostolic authority, and they don't submit to ecclesiastical authority. In other words, they're an island under themselves. They're very boastful, they're very proud, they're very arrogant. They can't be corrected because they reject authority. Here's another one, and this one is interesting, probably has raised questions in your mind when you've read it, They mock supernatural beings. Now, I must admit, this was probably unique to Jude's day. It's hard to find a parallel today. But he says this, Yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority. And look what it says here. They revile angelic majesties. In other words, can you believe that they revile angels? And he uses an example. He says, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil... And argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, where's Jude getting this information? Well, earlier he quoted from the book of Enoch, which is not an inspired book. Here, he's going to quote from another book, which is not an inspired book. It's called the Assumption of Moses. You say, well, how can he do that? Well, I can quote Hugh Hefner and not necessarily agree with everything Hugh Hefner said or how he lived. So he's quoting this information, and it comes from a book called The Assumption of Moses. And in The Assumption of Moses, Michael and Lucifer were arguing over the body of Moses. You say, why? We don't know. Some commentators think that uh, Satan was going to use Moses' body and turn it into a form of idolatry for the Israelites. We don't know exactly why they were disputing. But here is the point that Jude is making. When Michael dealt with one of his equals, which is Lucifer, because Lucifer was an archangel, Michael's an archangel. When Michael dealt with Lucifer, he didn't slander Lucifer and treat him with contempt. Michael doesn't even refer to his own power. What did Michael say to Lucifer? He said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, I'm not going to deal with you. I'm going to let the Lord deal with you. And so what's his point? Well, look what he says in the next verse, in verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. If Michael wasn't blasphemous towards Satan, listen, we're not to fear Satan, but we're to have a healthy respect. And by the way, when you deal with Satan in spiritual warfare, this is a pattern for us. We use the Lord's name to rebuke the devil. It's not our power. It's not our strength. And he's saying, look. If Michael appealed to God in dealing with Satan, how is it these false teachers are arrogant and they blaspheme celestial beings? You know why they do that? Because they're like animals, he says. Notice what he says in verse 10. And the things which they know by instinct, look at this, like unreasoning animals... By these things, they are destroyed. He says, look, you know what it is? They're like unreasoning animals. You know how your animal is unreasoning. I know you think that your animal has a real intelligence, but really they don't. They operate by instinct. Some animals are smarter than others, but animals operate off instinct. And he's saying, these false teachers, they're like animals. They instinctively blaspheme celestial beings, which means they have an irreverence for the supernatural. Seventh characteristic. They teach salvation by works. Notice, if you will, verse 11. He says, woe to them, judgment, for they have gone the way of Cain. Now, if you want to read about Cain in Genesis chapter 4, what does he mean they've gone the way of Cain? Well, that can speak of their jealousy. It could speak of the fact that they murder people with their false teaching, just as Cain murdered his brother Abel. But I believe what he's saying here is the way of Cain is self-styled religion. Because you remember, God told Abel and Cain, here's how you're to worship me. I want blood sacrifice because that typified Christ. You're to worship me by offering an animal, slaying it, because that is gonna represent what my son is gonna do. And so Abel followed God's instruction, but what did Cain do? Cain actually came with his fruit, Cain came with his produce, and God rejected his offering. And you know what Cain represents? People today that come to God on their own terms. In other words, rather than coming on God's terms, which is blood sacrifice, hence Jesus Christ, they're going to come based on their good works. And isn't this what false teachers always promulgate? They always teach that you can do X, Y, Z in, in order to get to heaven. That's exactly what the cults, the false religious systems, they all teach that salvation is by human achievement. The Bible makes it very clear it's by divine accomplishment, not human achievement, and so they teach salvation by works. They are greedy for money, number eight. He says in verse 11, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Notice Balaam, he was a prophet for hire. You remember God used a donkey to restrain him. You could read about this in chapter 16 of Numbers, and basically Balaam the prophet was motivated by money. This is the big one today that we see with a lot of the prosperity teachers. Now, I'm not going to be here to name names because ultimately God's going to determine some of these guys that are false teachers and not, but a lot of these hucksters on television you need to be careful of on TBN. They're always talking about money. That is the focus of their message. That's typical of a false teacher is they are disciples of dough. Two more he gives here. They, deliver, they do not deliver what they promise. Notice he uses imageries here, and by the way, have you noticed Jude likes to use images in three? I, t- I tend to think Jude probably had triplets in terms of kids, because if you read his epistle, he uses threes, and notice here how they don't deliver what they promise. He says in verse 12, they are clouds without water, and that day it was very dry, When a storm would come, they would expect refreshment from the rain, and the cloud would not deliver. He says they're carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit. See, they don't deliver what they promise. A rainstorm, you think you're going to get refreshing rain. You don't get it. When you plant a plant or a tree, you expect fruit, and he says you don't get the fruit. And he says they're doubly dead. They're uprooted. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know false teachers by their fruits. They don't have good fruit. Therefore, they are plucked out. He says in verse 13 to use a third image, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. All of us have walked the beach and we've seen all that white foam and all the driftwood and we've seen all the garbage. He's saying that's exactly what false teachers produce. They make promises to people, but they don't deliver what they promise. And he says this of them, wandering stars, shooting stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved. You can't rely on them because they're not fixed stars that navigators would use when they would go out in the ocean. They're shooting stars. They have a flash of brilliance, but then they're gone. And then he gives one more characteristic of false teachers. They are proud, discontented, cardinally driven leaders who use and divide people for their own advantage. Look what he says in verse 16. These are grumblers, fault, finding fault, following their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. These are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly-minded, they are devoid of the spirit. And so these are the 10 characteristics. And by the way, Jim Jones exhibits these characteristics. In fact, here is what one person said about Jim Jones father was what followers called Jones. He told them he was the reincarnation of Buddha, Jesus, Lenin, and Gandhi. He offered a sort of evangelical isolationist socialism. He was an aggressively bisexual drug user, liar, and narcissistic psychopath, end quote. He fits the characteristics. In fact, if I was to take all 10 of those and to summarize them, here is what we would say about false teachers to make it simple. Here is what they're typically driven by. Sex, silver, self, they are secretive, they're often clandestine, and they have shady core doctrines. If you were to take those five, that's how you would summarize it. Now, not all false teachers have all of these all at the same time. Some of them are very moral. And so how do we overcome the dark side? Jude says, number one, stand against false teachers. Number two, realize the destiny of false teachers. Number three, know the characteristics of false teachers. And finally and fourthly for this morning, protect yourselves against false teachers. How do we protect ourselves against false teachers? Well, Jude here is going to give us several ways and we're going to fly through these for the sake of time. Number one, be alert. Be alert. He says this. In verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember, don't forget, be alert, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they kept saying to you, here it is, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. You know what he's saying there, be alert. Remember what the apostles and the prophets said in the Bible, they warned us, that we would be living in these days today. Every generation has had to fight. And you know what? A lot of Christians are on spiritual Benadryl. They're asleep spiritually. And if you don't know what you believe, you're not walking in the spirit, you're not discerning, you're not going to be alert because the world will sing a spiritual lullaby and put you to sleep. So that's the first way we protect ourselves. we got to be alert. Secondly, be in the Word. Notice, if you will, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Your most holy faith is the Word of God that was once and for all delivered to the saints. we got to know the Word of God. You cannot rely just on John and I Sunday morning. You've got to know truth. Listen, don't just read the Bible devotionally. Read it theologically, You gotta know what you believe and why you believe it. And so many Christians today are spoon-fed. There's too many pumping Pablum pulpits today that are not giving the truth. But it goes beyond the pulpit to you knowing the Word of God, you studying the Word of God, and developing, listen carefully, a biblical worldview so that you're able to sift everything through the construct that you have in your mind in terms of what Scripture says. Thirdly, be praying. In verse 20, he says this, praying in the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about tongues here. Tongues is talked about in other passages. I believe here, he's saying, be a person who prays in concert with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how does that help me to overcome false teachers? Because when you're in touch with God, and the Spirit of God is on the inside of you, and you're communing with God regularly, your spiritual senses are sharpened. You're going to be more discerning to hear the voice of the Spirit that basically gives you a red flag. Fourthly, if we're going to protect ourselves, he says, be obedient. He says, keep yourselves, some translations have remain, keep yourselves or remain in the love of God. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought God loved me unconditionally. This almost seems conditional. Remain in the love of God. No, listen, God loves you unconditionally. What he's saying is is remain under the spigot of God's blessing. When he says remain in the love of God, he's saying follow God and obey him so that you will be under the spigot of his blessing. And so obedience is essential if we're gonna overcome false teachers, why? Because when you walk in obedience to the truth, you know what God does? He gives you more truth. When you obey what God has shown you, You know what God does? God gives you more truth, more enlightenment, and he gives you more understanding. Jesus said, if you don't don't use what I've given you, he says, I'll take it away and give it to someone else. And so what happens is when we hear the truth, obey the truth, God reveals more of the truth to us. But listen, obedience is essential. And today we have a lot of fans of Jesus, but we don't have a lot of followers of Jesus. We have a lot of people in the stadium of Christianity that are cheering. Praise God. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Hey, listen, are you ready to follow Jesus? Well, no, no, I'm not ready now. I got my kids sports, you know. That's more important to me. No, no, I can't do that, man. I got got my stuff over here. I got my retirement that I'm focused on. I can't follow Jesus now. And listen, the church today is lukewarm Because we are so committed to our materialism, we are so committed to our comfort, we are so committed to our agenda, we have erected idols in the American church. And we're not followers of Jesus. And this is why the American church has lost power, people. And I'm preaching to myself here. But the fact of the matter is, we gotta take a hard look at ourselves and ask the question, are we obedient disciples, not perfectly, we're gonna fail? But are we moving in that direction or are we nominal Christians who just want to come to church, put on our fake Pepsodent smiles and say, Jesus is great. And we go home and there's no transformation in our life. And so if we're going to protect ourselves against false teachers, we must be alert, we must be in the Word, we must be praying, we must be obedient. Fifthly, we must be looking he says in verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. In other words, be anticipating the return of Christ. You say, but they've talked about that for generations. When's he coming back? I don't know. I'm not Harold Camping. I can't tell you when. All I can tell you is this, when you and I anticipate the return of Christ, and the way we do that is by getting into the word of God, what happens is 1 John chapter 3 it purifies us. And it makes us accountable Because listen, I know that I'm going to stand before God as a pastor one day, not for condemnation in hell. I know I'm secure in Christ. But listen, I got to give an account. And you know what that does? That restrains my behavior. I obviously don't do things because I love Jesus. But listen, there is an accountability factor that galvanizes me to walk with God, not out of fear, but out of love. But I realize I'm going to be accountable. And then finally... If we're going to protect ourselves, he says, be reaching, be reaching. This is great. Verses 22 and 23, he says we're to reach out to the victims of false teachers. There are people caught up in the lies of false teachers, and he mentions three categories of people that we're to reach out to. Number one are the doubters, the doubters. Notice what he says in verse 22, and have mercy on some who are what? Doubting. There are people that have honest questions that doubt Christianity. I doubt sometimes. So do you. But there are people that haven't crossed the line of faith. They struggle with doubt. They struggle with questions. How do I know the Bible is the word of God? How do I know Jesus lived historically? How do I know God exists? And he says, look, reach out to the doubters. And he says, have mercy on them. Don't go, what, you're doubting? Are you stupid? You don't tell that to people. If you say that to a non-believer, they'll get turned off. And listen, I've talked to a lot of people over my short life who have said to me, you know what, I had questions when I was younger, and the priest or the pastor told me to shut up, don't ask those questions. And you know what, they walked away from Christianity. There are people who doubt. So he says, reach out to the doubters and have mercy. A second group are the dabblers. Not only the doubters, but the dabblers. Notice, if you will, verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, these people are dabblers. They're not just doubters. They have actually gotten in, and they're beginning to dabble with false religious systems. They're dabbling with the cults. He says, look, snatch them out of the fire. Do what you can. Now, obviously, we don't do that in a physical way, but we try to persuade them on the reliability of the Bible and Christianity. These are people that are dabblers. And then finally, there's another category he says we're to be careful of. These are the deceived You have the doubters, the dabblers, and the deceived. He said, on some, have mercy with what? Fear. He says, there are some people that are ensconced and entrenched in these false religious systems. He says, you need to have a modicum of fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. In other words, these people are so corrupted, they're so ensconced in the system, it's as if their garments are corrupted. These would be the cult leaders, And if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, you can get sucked right into the vortex of that. So Jude says, be reaching. Reach the doubters, the dabblers, and the deceived. Well, he ends with a benediction in verse 24 and 25. You know, it's kind of negative when you read this epistle. It's kind of like heavy and weighty, but he gives here a triumphant benediction, a closing. And he says this in verse 24, to him, that is God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. In other words, if you're truly one of God's own, ultimately you're going to make it to heaven. He says he's going to bring you into eternity. You may stumble here and there, but you get back up. He says God is able to present you before his presence without fault and with great joy. We're going to be glorified one day. We're not going to struggle with sin anymore. And then he gives a paean of praise in verse 25, to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Let's say it out loud, amen. So listen, false teachers abound. What are the four ways that you and I could overcome the dark side? This isn't cyber attacks. There are cyber attacks on the church. Number one, stand against what? False teachers Got to know what you believe and why you believe it. Number two, realize the destiny of false teachers. They're headed for an eternal doom. Don't sit under their teaching. Number three, know the characteristics of false teachers. And then finally, protect yourselves against false teachers. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word to us. It's a heavy word. It's a stern word. But it is a necessary word. Especially, Father, today when even churches are falling into error, And they're being hoodwinked by a lot of shepherds who don't have their best intention in mind. God, I thank you for Calvary Chapel. I thank you for the movement. I thank you for a lot of other churches that are teaching the word of God. And I pray that you would raise up another generation who would teach the word of God. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're just relying on the teaching of the word. You're not in the word yourself. You don't know what you believe and why. I want to encourage you. Make a commitment this morning not to be a fan, but a follower, and be willing to say, Jesus, I'm going to learn your word. I'm going to learn Bible doctrine. I'm going to know what I believe in, what I believe, and why I believe it. Just take a moment right now. Whatever God spoke to you this morning, do business with God. The Spirit of God spoke to you about something this morning. Whatever it is, wrestle with God over it. Let's do that quietly as we prepare our hearts for worship. Father, we worship you, we praise you, and and as Jude prayed, we, we, we give you glory that, Lord God, you will keep us from stumbling, and that you will bring us ultimately in your presence if we're truly your own. If we belong to you, Father, you will bring us into your presence. We thank you. We bless you. Lord, help us to be discerning in these days and times, not only within the church, but outside of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.